If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. And we'll be in verse 33 to the end of the chapter today. For those of you who are following along with our series, yes, I did plan for us to be here today and in Mark 16 next Sunday on Resurrection Sunday. Looking forward to that. This morning we recited the Apostles' Creed together, and in it we declared that Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried, and that he descended into the realm of the dead. That word hell was a literal translation of Sheol, or the idea of the realm of the dead. In other words, historic Christian faith involves believing that Jesus literally died and his body was laid to rest in a tomb. We're going to see that explicitly in this text we're about to read from Mark's gospel. And we're also going to see from the text some implications from Jesus's death on the cross and his burial in the tomb and how that should impact our lives. So I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word from Mark chapter 15. I'll be reading from verse 33 to the end of the chapter in verse 47, and I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, See, he's calling for Elijah. Some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink, and said, Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. When it was already evening, because it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. When When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. After he bought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in the linen. Then he laid him in a tomb, cut out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were watching where he was laid. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for standing in honor of it. Would you please be seated? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for 
the time that we have already spent together, gathered to bring praise and honor to the name of Jesus. Lord, we've recited what we believe as a church, and I pray that you would instruct our hearts further from this text today. Would your Holy Spirit be our teacher? Would you open the ears and the eyes of those who have not yet seen and savored Jesus Christ and what his death and burial and ultimately his resurrection means for them? God, would you convict us of sin? And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. In the verses that we just read, Mark transitions from the mockery of Jesus to the meaning in his death. Mark's account of Christ's last moment do not include all the details that Matthew or Luke or John do. So it's my effort today not to make a reconstruction of all of the Gospels in something like the seven last words of Christ or uh, just a reconstruction of the history of Jesus' final days, as interesting and as helpful as that may be. But rather, my goal is to kind of hone in on what Mark himself is saying about the death of Jesus and the burial of Jesus and some of the unique points of emphasis he makes. I hope this morning from the text to show you six things that we can learn from Mark's account of Christ's death and his burial. And then I want to ask the question, how does that apply to me today? How does this text apply to us in 2023? I intend to show you three points of application drawn from those six implications. And then I want to end with three brief exhortations based on those points of applications. All right, so you got it? Six things we're learning about the text, three points of application, and three brief exhortations on how to live. So the first implication from the text we've read today is by darkness. By, by darkness at Jesus' crucifixion, we learn that judgment was intended. This is an implication of describing the supernatural darkness that took place. In verse 33 of Mark 15, we see that there was darkness over the whole land for three hours. Now the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible from which I read, helpfully translates that the sixth hour to the ninth hour was from noon to 3 p.m. According to Jewish reckoning that those days, times would begin at 6 a.m. So the sixth hour to the ninth hour might be in some of your translations. And this text just helps us see that that's from noon to three. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but at our house, uh, we don't have a lot of street lights outside in our neighborhood, do we, Brother Gary? It's a dark, uh, you know, like when, it, when it's dark and it's night, midnight, and there's no moon shining and no lights on in the house, sometimes I can't see my, my hand in front of my face. It is literally that dark. Darkness can sometimes be palpable in a way. It's potent. But it's more normal for that to happen at midnight, not in the middle of the day when the sun is typically at its brightest. Reflecting on those three hours of darkness, one commentator wrote poetically, 33 years earlier, there had been brightness and music at midnight when Jesus was born. Now there's darkness and silence at noon when he dies. 
The contrast is certainly stark between Christ's birth and his death, but there is, I think, a greater depth of meaning to the darkness. You see, the way that Mark describes this darkness uses language that ties it closely with the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's called the Septuagint in Exodus chapter 10 and verse 22. So this is the Lexham English Septuagint. This is an English translation of the Greek translation of the Hebrew of the Old Testament. And in 1022 of Exodus, we read, Moses stretched out his hand toward the heaven and there was darkness, a dark, dense storm over the whole land of Egypt for three days. Not three hours, but three days. But there's a similarity to the way that Mark is writing that uh, a scholar, somebody who is in tune to the, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament might have said, oh, that, that sounds like the darkness of the plagues. And of course, we know that that darkness was God's judgment on the Egyptians. Another example of spiritual, uh, excuse me, supernatural darkness that implies judgment can be found in Isaiah chapter 5. And earlier in the text, uh, the picture is God whistling, uh, kind of calling the other nations, the Gentile nations, to judge the people of Israel. And in verse 30, it says, On that day, the, the nations will roar over it like a lion, like a, the roaring of the sea. And when, looks, when one looks at the land, there will be darkness and distress on the land. Light will be obscured by the clouds. And so uh, this is a symbol throughout Scripture that kind of pictures God's judgment. When there's darkness, when it should be light, this is a picture of God judging sin. We see that at the cross, God's judgment for sin was being poured out. But it's not just the darkness that helps us see that. Also, the way Mark includes Jesus' cry of anguish helps us see this as well. So, secondly, by Jesus' cry, we infer that God's wrath was inflicted. God's wrath was inflicted. Verse 34 in Mark 15 says, Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. Some thought that his cry in Aramaic sounded like the Hebrew Eli for Elijah. And there was a Jewish understanding that Elijah would return in the last days. But Mark knows that Jesus' cry is not for Elijah. It is the echoing of the words of Psalm 22. He was crying the words of Psalm 22 in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me or forsaken me? Why are you so far from my deliverance or for saving me and so far from the words of my groaning? A sense of abandonment and forsakenness overwhelms the son because in the moment that he was on the cross, he was drinking to the dregs in full the cup of the wrath of God towards sinners. Mark can think of no better way, excuse me, Jesus can think of no better way of expressing his inner anguish than the words of the psalmist that simultaneously express his anguish and his feeling of abandonment and express trust in God. Because if you read all of Psalm 22, the first portion of it definitely expresses that feeling, but it, it ends, it, it, it takes a turn where it results in praise and um, uh, thanksgiving that God has not ultimately abandoned the Son. And while I tend to think that all of this psalm was in Jesus' mind while he was hanging there, that he would 
eventually declare his name to his brothers, that he would lead the congregation in praise, that he would have his name extended to the ends of the earth, that it would be finished and posterity would praise his name like the end of Psalm 22 says. I don't think it's wise for us to overly dilute what Mark is saying because Mark doesn't go and quote the rest of Psalm 22 for us. He just leaves us with the anguishing cry and the sense of God's wrath poured out for sins. Isaiah says in chapter 53 of the suffering servant, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In Jesus' cry, we learn that the great wrath of God towards sin was placed on Jesus as he became sin who knew no sin. And as Jesus bore God's just punishment for sins. In verse 37 of Mark 15, we also read that Jesus cried out once more, in a loud voice. I think this is part of what caught the centurion's attention. It was unusual for someone to be able to cry out with a loud voice when they were being crucified, especially as they were about to die. It was more typical for a person to lose more and more of their vitality, more and more of their energy as they grew weary from a lack of oxygen and from blood loss. But Jesus was able to cry out with a loud voice with his final breath, showing his power and his sovereignty. Mark records that as he breathed his last, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And so thirdly, by the veil being torn, we see that access was initiated. This is another implication from Mark's text. We see access to God initiated. We know, of course, that being torn from top to bottom was a miracle of God. We know that because we've studied together as a church the book of Exodus. And that 15-foot-high veil, the very thick curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies would not have been able to have been torn by human hands apart from a miracle. Furthermore, any priest who would have ever attempted to go and tear it himself would have needed a ladder. And by the time he got there, it would have been taken down and stoned outside of the camp for blasphemy. This genuine miracle of the veil being torn meant that access into the presence of God had been initiated. Jesus had already condemned the temple and the presence of God was uh, going to depart from the temple and not be there anymore, but be in him, that he would be the new and living temple. And Jesus promised the temple's impending destruction, the physical temple. And now we find out that the moment Jesus died, the usefulness 
of animal sacrifices and thousands of years of ritual purity and cleansing and denied access into God's presence was rendered obsolete in an instant. Mark has another implication. He wants the reader to attach to the, to the death of Jesus. This is the fourth implication. By the centurion's statement that surely this was the Son of God, we see Jesus' sonship identified. In particular, Mark is tying the death of the suffering servant to the truth that Jesus is God's Son. Let me flesh that out a little bit for us. He wants us to get the portrait of Jesus that the suffering servant on the cross is truly the Son of God. And get the picture in your mind of the one who endured the judgment and wrath of God and recognize with this Gentile centurion that Jesus is God's son when he was nailed to the cross. Now there's some neat literary things that Mark does to show this connection. I want to try and draw it out for you. I found this very interesting. You know, at the beginning of Mark's gospel, I've pointed this out a number of times. Mark says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So for the reader of the gospel of Mark, there is no question about the identity of Jesus. He tips the hand at the very beginning and wants you to know as you study his gospel who Jesus really is. But then the whole gospel is kind of unfolding uh, a growing understanding of this portrait of Jesus. And so at the very beginning in Mark chapter 1, after Jesus is baptized, we see in Mark 1 verse 10 and 11, as soon as he came up out of the water, something is torn. You see this? He says, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven after the tearing of the heavens, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so there is a tearing and a proclamation of Jesus' sonship. Now track with me to Mark 15 and verse 38 and 39. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Same Greek word, schizo, torn, rent, from top to bottom. And when the centurion who, was, who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed this last, he cried, truly this man was the Son of God. So from the beginning to the end of the gospel, Mark sets it off in relief for us. There's the tearing of the heavens. There's the tearing of the, the temple veil, which again, if you think of it, the blues and the purples and the angels and the cherubim and the picture of the universe that the tabernacle was and the cosmos. And God tore the heavens and said, this is my son. And God tore the temple veil and the centurion said, this is God's son identifying for us the sonship of Jesus with these literary clues. This has been the tension all throughout Mark's gospel that's been building because the disciples have been very slow to get it. They've seen aspects of how Jesus is the Son of God, but they've never yet tied his sonship to his suffering. So one commentator says, although Peter, and by implication the other disciples, recognized Jesus' messianic identity in chapter 8, for example— the disciples have been consistently spiritually blind to the teaching concerning the suffering of the Messiah. And shockingly, it is this Gentile centurion 
who first recognizes that Jesus' divine sonship and his messianic identity are confirmed not through conquest, but through suffering and dying on the cross. This is what confirms that Jesus is the Messiah. What does it mean to be the Son of God? It means not only that the Messiah will rule with an iron scepter, like Psalm 2, but it means he will be the suffering servant, like we read in Isaiah 53, who gave his life as a ransom for sinful and lost humanity, for their separation from God. So in the death of Jesus, we find these four implications that Mark, I think, wants us to see, but he also wants us to catch at least two other implications from the account of Jesus's burial. So fifthly, by naming witnesses of Jesus's death and burial, we find out women were involved. Women were involved. Up to this point in the narrative, you could have been under the impression that Jesus's followers in the main, or at least most of his supporters, were men. But here, Mark lists three women by name and includes in verse 41 the fact that many other women had followed Jesus from Galilee into Jerusalem. The CSB Study Bible notes this is the first reference in Mark's gospel to Mary Magdalene. Jesus had expelled seven demons from her. That account is in Luke chapter 8 and verse 2. She came from Magdala on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And then there's Mary, uh, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, who is called the other Mary in Matthew chapter 27. Possibly she was the mother of James, the son of Alphaeus. And then there's Salome, who is named only in Mark. She was the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. But the reference to these women is far from incidental or just casually thrown in. In fact, these women are the link to the resurrection account that we'll study next Sunday from Mark chapter 16. One person has noted that their presence at Golgotha, at the scene of the burial, and again, the discovery of the empty tomb, binds all of these final scenes of the gospel tightly together, and it assures the reader that these women, the only human witnesses of the fact of Jesus' resurrection in Mark's gospel, have been closely involved in the whole sequence of events, so that any possibility of a mistake, for instance, over the location of the tomb of Jesus is ruled out. They saw him die. They saw him buried. And they saw the empty tomb. Now, in short, we are introduced to these women who are the prime witnesses of Jesus' death and burial. And there will be more for me to say on that when it comes to application. But let me get the sixth implication in first, okay? So... Number six, by Joseph's act of courage, Joseph of Arimathea, his act of courage, we know Jesus's corpse was interred. We know Jesus's corpse was interred. I, I use that word corpse because that is the word Mark uses here in verse 45 of chapter 15. In other words, Jesus did not swoon on the cross. He didn't go to having a fainting spell. He didn't fake death and hide in the tomb. He was dead, dead. 
He was super dead. He was dead. Period. The Roman executioners had this thing down to a science. Pilate was actually surprised by Jesus' speedy death. Usually it would take someone a while, sometimes days, to expire by crucifixion. But the centurion knew. And the gospel records that they pierced his side to check and blood and water flowed. They didn't have to break his legs to speed up the asphyxiation process. Thankfully, instead of allowing Jesus' body to be eaten by dogs or rot on the cross, there was this brave Jewish man, a member of the Sanhedrin. John tells us that in concert with Nicodemus, he was uh, able to bury Jesus' body in Joseph's family tomb, one in which no one had ever been laid. It was a tomb that was hollowed out of rock, like a man-made cave, and it would have likely had several shelves for dead corpses to be laid into, and once the body completely decomposed, they would gather the bones and place them in an ossuary. But the record is clear. Jesus was lowered down off the cross, laid in the grave, and had the stone rolled against the entrance to the tomb. So what does our understanding of these six implications have to do with you and me today in 2023? How, how should we live after we've studied a text like this? Well, first of all, points five and six remind us that the death and burial of Jesus are a historical reality. The death and burial of Jesus are a historical reality. These things happened in our world. Based on Andreas Kostenberger's scholarly estimation, they probably happened Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD, 1990 years ago tomorrow. The facts surrounding Jesus' death and burial are very well attested. They're attested not just by the Bible, but by extra-biblical sources. That's why the Apostles' Creed says he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. It puts Jesus' death in historical perspective. In other words, this really took place. But the real reason why you should have strong trust in points five and six, reminding us that Jesus' death and burial are a historical reality, is because if you were making it up, you wouldn't write the gospel this way. You simply couldn't get away with it. That's because in a society which gave no legal status to the testimony of women, everything depends on the witness of women and what they had seen and heard. So if you were going to try to make up the most convincing lie possible, you would have had men be the one that found Jesus' body wasn't there. You would have had men witnessing his death, that he fully died, and his burial. You would have had men discover the empty tomb. It's seemingly embarrassing, I put that in scare quotes, embarrassing details like this and others. Like, for example, when Jesus tells Peter to get behind him, Satan, like 
Yeah, put put the part about where Jesus called me Satan in there, right? You just, you don't include embarrassing details like that if you're fabricating something. But if it really happened and you're writing true history, you tell the truth. What exactly happened? Furthermore, all the authorities would have had to do to squash Christianity from the start was produce the body. Simple. Produce the body. Jesus definitely died. But friends, I've been to the Church of the Holy Sepulcher in Jerusalem. There's no body. There's no body there. So we are reminded by the eyewitness of the women and the inclusion of the grim reality that Joseph was granted Jesus's corpse. We're dealing with facts of history. But secondly, by way of application, points one and two, our implications one and two, remind us that our greatest problem, sin that separates us from God, has been resolved. Our greatest problem, sin that separates us from God, has been resolved. The judgment and wrath of God for sin has been humanity's greatest problem ever since the fall. We have been on a collision course with our Creator. His judgment is just. His wrath for our rebellion is deserved. So how can we ever escape it? Jesus resolved that. We see from points one and two, he bore the judgment of God and he took the wrath of God. If we repent of our sins and receive this marvelous gift of God's grace through the crucified, buried, and raised Son, we will be saved. Have you ever asked someone or heard someone ask you, how can a good and all-powerful God allow evil, like the kind of evil we saw this week in the school shooting, take place in this world? The answer to that question is that it will not continue forever. Hear me. Every sin and every injustice will be paid for. I hope that gives you hope after a week like this because my heart is broken and grieved. You cannot repay the injustice done to those six victims in this lifetime. There is no way to bring justice in this life. But I worship a God who is just. We read it in Psalm 67. He will judge the nations with justice. He will repay every sin. And so here's the thing. Either... A person will receive the grace of God and his or her sins paid for by Jesus when he died on the cross and resolved this problem of judgment and wrath, or he or she will pay the price of their own sins forever in hell. John's gospel puts it like this. I love this verse because it's so succinct and it, it proves this point. In John 3.36, we read, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. 
Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Do you see the side of the equation that does not have the wrath of God? It's life in Christ or wrath. Thirdly, we can apply these implications to our lives by seeing that points three and four remind us that in Christ, God and humanity are reconciled. God and humanity are reconciled. The centurion identifies this man who died in front of his very eyes as the Son of God. Now, we studied a few weeks ago that only one who is truly human and truly God could bring reconciliation between God and man. And that is where point three couples well with point four, because we see that when the veil was torn, animal sacrifices were no longer relevant. They were never meant to last forever. Even the Old Testament writers knew the blood of bulls and goats couldn't actually take away sins, like our call to worship so appropriately said, or like our study in Hebrews this morning in Bible Fellowship so appropriately said. It needed to be a perfect human sacrifice to suffer the punishment for human sin. But since no human being stained by the fall would ever measure up, God would need to intervene and rescue us. This is why it's so important that we believe that he was born of the Virgin Mary. We said it today, but if it was not for being born of the Virgin Mary, if he was born by one of us, he would have been born in sin like the rest of humanity. He needed to be a perfect human being. And he suffered the punishment for human sin. God needed to intervene. The incarnation then is central to the acceptance of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, one that would forever make access to God and reconciliation with God possible. So in light of these three application points from the six implications, I want to leave you with three very brief exhortations. Number one, witness confidently. Number two, worship humbly. And number three, approach boldly. Witness confidently, worship humbly, and approach boldly. We are to witness confidently because you know that the account of Jesus' death and burial is a historical reality. The text is clear. Pilate gave Joseph a corpse to bury, but there is no body to be found. More on that next week. And the text is clear that women were there to witness the death, burial, and empty tomb, and that detail would have never been included in a made-up story. So witness about Jesus' death for sinners and his burial and resurrection confidently. Second, worship humbly. Brothers and sisters, realizing that Jesus bore the judgment we deserve and took the wrath we should have received should humble us and make us thankful for the price he paid for our sins. There should be no such thing as boasting when you truly understand the grace of God. Paul makes that clear in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, doesn't he? But then third, 
we can now approach God's throne boldly. We know that the veil is torn and that because Jesus is the Son of God, he was vindicated for his holy life. And after that, he rose and ascended to the Father and now intercedes for us by merit of the perfect blood he shed. So the writer of Hebrews says, we can now boldly approach the throne of grace to receive help in time of need. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the realm of the dead. And because of that, because of what we know from Scripture, we are to witness confidently to others, worship Him humbly for saving us from sin, and approach the throne of grace boldly because the veil was torn when the Son of God gave His life for sinners like you and like me.